You're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of the imagination. There's a signpost up ahead. It's the deep dive. <laughs> That's what? very good music you chose for that, the podcast, by the way. Oh, yeah, brought to us by Jonathan McKenzie. That that's, is uh, that's Jonathan. By nice. our own Jonathan McKenzie. Jonathan plays the keyboard at our church, but he also um, does everything musical. He's fantastic. So, yeah. Awesome. And, and what Kudos did you, you Jonathan. just read that? Was, what, what was that? Was that was the Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone. From like something? way back in the like 50s or 60s or something. Yeah, I don't feel like. Old uh, black and white show. Isn't there like a weird soundtrack that goes with the Twilight da, Zone? Da, 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 yeah, right. Okay. Cool. I don't. I don't know much about it. Oh, it's classic. Worth checking out. Yeah, it is. It go is. On a little I mean, it's dive? it's hit and miss. Yeah. There's some that are like really brilliant and profound mm-hmm. that you can have these deep thoughts about. Are we living in the twilight zone? No. Sometimes or, it we? feels like it, doesn't it? It. Oh, it certainly does. This is a crazy world we live in. You know, and, and everyone, we love to talk about it. Everyone talks about this. Like we're living in this crazy age. Like oh, 2021 has has been nuts. 2020. I mean, that was the dystopian nightmare we all you know but i always wonder i go like are we really any different than i always think things are more the same than different that's my that's my thinking i don't know i just kind of go like i don't know everybody probably thought they were facing the end of the world in their generation am i wrong i don't know for sure i I still think no matter how bad 2020 and 2021 has been we're probably still light years away from what it was like for people during world war one or world war two yeah 100 that was probably you know uh, how, how many of us would be whining about things back then that were like we would probably trade 2020 for you know 1939 in a second? Yes, yeah, I imagine. Yeah, I always thought this growing up because I was like looking at you know you start reading history and you're like mm, we're due for something. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's not good. I don't know. I'm rambling. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. <laughs> 2021 is it's, it's almost been, over it's for been us. Fine. If it's you're listening fine. to this in 2022, we're just still getting over 2021. That's right. So what, are, so what are we talking about today, Ben? I think we want to get into the Bible. The B-I-B-L-E? The B-I-B-L-E. This is, I mean, how can you have a theology podcast and not kind of begin with something about That's, the Bible? It's really what it's about. It's sorry. It, I mean, it is. It's really kind of at the beginning of the whole thing. At least as far as I can tell, if you don't figure out what you're doing with Scripture, then you can't really figure out the rest, can you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's sort of the foundational, what do you, what do, you do with it? How do you treat yeah. it? You know, what are we doing when we read Scripture, and what is Scripture? I think that's that's sort of the question to yeah. get into. Today. Can I can I tell you a strange truth about me? Please do. Um, when I'm when I'm, uh, I often look at Wikipedia, just for fun. So especially weird. if if uh, yeah, that's weird. So especially strange. like if I'm you know on the potty, you know, waiting for business to be yeah, done. Yeah, that's a good time. For and um, and I've noticed of late the last few weeks that the Bible has been like one of the top searched things. Because it'll say on the, on my Wikipedia app that you know, what, like, what is are it some like of a certain question, top, or you just mean Wikipedia? What are the top? Uh, it'll the say Bible. what are the top five searches? Yeah, and yeah, the yeah. Bible's been there for like I, I think most of December, maybe even November. Get out which of town. I wonder why exactly, but I, I've just noticed that. Well, there you go. Then they should listen to this podcast because that's we're right. going to tell them all about the Bible. Absolutely, because we read Wikipedia before we came here, <laughs> and that's what we know about it. And it's always a timely <laughs> subject too, because. Yeah. Uh, there's still lots of, again, not only is it being searched around on Wikipedia a lot, people are often talking about the Bible 
Uh, yes. There's always new spins, new ideas that people have about the Bible. True. Um, and there was something that you, something about the Bible that you were, you had heard of recently that you wanted to, that kind of really sparked Oh, well, yeah, it did. I, and I think, you know, a, a lot of people will know what I'm talking about, especially if they're on any social media platforms. But there's a, a lot of talk these days about this term deconstruction, mm. okay? Deconstruct, people deconstructing their faith. And uh, it's it's sort of a confused term. We could get into that. There's sort of an academic definition of what deconstruction means, and then there's a way people are using it now yeah, more culturally. Pop definition, right? Of of and what they mean, I think culturally is kind of you see this with a lot of young people. Like they were raised in a certain faith tradition, and then now they're deconstructing what they were taught. They're kind of going like figuring out what pieces to keep and what to throw away, and and what do they really believe? And so this is that deconstructive and in a way it is it's both of the it's deconstructive so it's like we're taking apart to try and build something back and it is ripped on by a lot of uh reformed evangelical types who think that this is a fad and a trend and people are jumping john piper don't listen to this podcast yeah uh, yeah god bless you (laughs) or do and come on and then we can have a debate (laughs) that would be be wonderful uh No, he's not coming on. Uh, but, you know, so there's that. And then, but then there's other people who think that this is a totally fine thing to do and it's yeah. a necessary process. And that's kind of where I go, does the word, de- for me personally, I'm like, does the word deconstruction really need to be used? Are you really deconstructing right. or are you just questioning things that once seemed a way that they weren't? Because, and this is where I'll just give a little background before we get into this. Sure. Deconstruction really is a term most famously used by a philosopher named Jacques Derrida. Um, who was a French postmodernist in the 1970s, uh, I mean, writing in the 1970s with a group of others. Um, And uh, deconstruction in his sense really means something more like we are always using language that has shifting meanings. And so to deconstruct means to decenter a the the actual definition of something. Uh, we're constantly trapped in linguistics. We're constantly trapped in in wordplay, and so nothing really has true meaning. It just defers to other meanings, right? It just moves from one definition to another to another, and that leaves you with you know you could argue it can leave you with a sense of relativism, but at the same time it also is it, some people see it positively as a way of refining what I'm truly talking about because we're always grasping at something we can never land on. So it's so, kind of like the Princess Bride where he keeps saying inconceivable. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I, I, yeah, you use that word. I don't know if you know what that means. Certainly the debate around deconstruction is a lot like that, right? Yeah. I mean, like, you, I do not know if you know. I think it'd be good <laughs> if people could figure out really what that definition, what they're working with and then talk about it. But you know, it is what it is. Derrida is one of those guys who, depending on who you ask, he's either theology's greatest villain or he's very helpful. Yeah. Um, I won't truly weigh in because I don't know enough about Derrida. Truthfully, yeah, I reserve. Either. But but I think Derrida, you know, I think he can be of use for sure, but I wouldn't follow him all the way down from what I know. Um, so anyway, but this had led to a number of people, especially on Twitter that I've been seeing Twitter, the, the, you know, if it were a place, it would be a den of iniquity, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, and I don't ever chime in on Twitter, but, uh, I'm, I'm a voyeur. I just watch other people's conversations and this sort of deconstruction crowd. There's a lot of conversation about specifically the apostle Paul and people just saying, you know, you don't need to listen to Paul if you don't want to. Yes. You can be a Christian as Christians. I'm saying this not as non-believers. Of course, they don't. That's right. But they're saying, you know, you can be a Christian and you can kind of like, if you disagree with Paul, that's fine because he's an interpreter. I totally call me old fashioned, Colin. Yes, you're <laughs> old fashioned. Call me old fashioned. You are old I fashioned. I find this sure. 
cringy. I, I go, Absolutely. oh man. And so here, let me let me put it in a statement, and then we can talk about this because I'd Sounds like to good. hear your thoughts as well. Is somebody had commented, sort of rebutting them, and said, if you throw away one word of Paul, you throw away all of Christ. Mm. Discuss. I mean, what do you think? I mean, is that is that harsh? Is that true? What do you think? Um, well, I certainly wouldn't put it in those words. I don't think myself that you throw away mm-hmm. a word of Paul, you're throwing away Christ. But you're certainly throwing away uh, something that is uh, foundational to our faith and our understanding. I mean, Paul wrote most of the New Testament, mm-hmm. right? So if you throw out Paul, you're not left with a lot. Right. Um, and even some of the stuff that isn't about Paul still mentions Paul, like Peter and Acts and such. So he's a big deal. But you wouldn't word it that way because it seems a little too heavy-handed in terms of A little bit too heavy-handed, yeah. Okay. Um, And and I understand what that person is probably trying to say um, rhetorically. Right. You know, uh, but it's maybe a bit of a... So I want to press this a little bit because this is is where, you know, just whether or not you agree with the statement, it's to me, it's getting into the nitty gritty then of like, this raises the question to me, what are you really talking about when you talk about the Bible? Yes. And... I think for me, this has been, it's like one of those memes where (laughs) you start with, like I started with growing up going like, the Bible is the word of God. Yeah. And then in my 20s, I started to question things and kind of moved into this agnostic phase. And I became this person who was like, the Bible is just Bronze Age mythology that was written by people. Yeah. Then I started reading again and I came around to like, uh, no, the Bible is the inspired word. You know, God has God has spoken through fallible human author. And now, since doing PhD and stuff, it's like I'm back to the Bible is the Word of God. <laughs> <laughs> and like you kind of move through. Maybe that's being childlike, and hopefully yeah. it is. But I, I uh, it, this is about how we approach Scripture. And I think for most of us in the contemporary world, uh, and there's a long history that's brought us here. Um, we tend to treat the Bible, we want to be really scientific about it. We yeah. want to be really forensic about it. And uh, we've, been, we've been brought up to adopt a sort of uh, a historical critical method, it's called. So we're, we're looking at the Bible and we're like, we just need to know the history and the context, and then we can figure out what's really going on. Yes. Um, the problem with that is that what then you end up doing is you end up treating the Bible as though it is, first of all, primarily it's data to be mined. Yes. And that you are, yeah, you're just getting the data of something. Then it also presupposes this idea that, uh, that Jesus is therefore somebody behind the text. This is the way I would put it, is like, a lot of the liberal movements of the last 300 years have, you know, there was what was called the quest for the historical Jesus. It yes. went through a number of phases, uh, and there's a number of different figures who kind of kept bringing it back into conversation. But it works under the presupposition that if we peel back the layers of Scripture, there's a Jesus we can find behind them. Yes. So how, and so this is why every year, National Geographic and all the books at chapters, well, the real historical Jesus, <laughs> yes. right? Documentaries on A&E, the real, who was the real Jesus? Yes. And if I'm playing my cards on the table and kind of telling you where I come from, uh, Jesus is who he says he is in Scripture. <laughs> yeah. We are always given Jesus through an interpretation. Because we're given them through the Gospels, and yeah. we're given them through the biblical text, through Paul, who's interpreting the Gospels, and interpreting the Old Testament in, in accordance with those Gospels. That's okay, right. so 
you're never receiving a Jesus who's not technically interpreted, but that is Jesus. That's right. And, uh, and so this kind of goes to this understanding of what are we, when we read Scripture, how does the language of the Bible function for us? Mm. And so I can get into a little bit of that, but I, you know, again, I want to, I want to just be transparent about where I'm coming from. I am schooled in the theology of what's been called post-liberal theology. Um, it, uh, it, it is kind of birthed out of the Yale school. So I'm at Wycliffe College at U of T. All of my professors are from Yale. And in the 1980s, there was this sort of divisive, uh, you know, uh, well, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was friendly, I think, to some degree, but it was between the Chicago school and the Yale school. Chicago school was putting forward these more liberal kind of notions of we need to story the Bible historically within its context, figure out, you know, those sorts of things to get at the true meaning. And the post-liberal, the Yale school was trying to uh, use language of scripture more uh, in, in the sense of play by the rules of scripture. That may be the best mm. way to put it. Uh, scripture has to define for itself what it is for us, and we have to use that language and not try and uh, seek out all these exterior forms of logic and things that, that then impose themselves on what the Bible is telling us. Yeah. Because the Bible presents itself as the revealed Word of God. Yes. And so, so this, this created, I mean, that's, a, that's probably a pretty poor, actually, uh, uh, description of exactly what was going on there. But I'll, I'll again, put it this way. Um, there, was a, there was a guy named Hans Frey, and Hans Frey was a professor at Yale, and he developed, uh, uh, he, he wrote on the types of theology that people engage in. And he tried to kind of take a number of figures and put them on a sort of graph of like, how are they engaging with theological questions? Mm. And on one end of that spectrum, what you would have is the belief that when we do theology, we're really just doing philosophy. Um, you can look to Plato and Aristotle and look to forms of reason. And then we can use theology as a science just like that. Yes. And so any Joe Schmo can, can do theology, okay? That'd be the belief on side one. On the furthest end of the other spectrum would be you have to be a believer in order to do theology properly. Mm. It begins with a confession because theology is its own linguistic, it, it's, its own, it's its own set of language. It's its own vocabulary. You can yes. only use it within the community. Um, this, by the way, is influenced greatly by the, uh, by the philosophy of a guy named Ludwig Wittgenstein. So it's called the Wittgensteinian turn. Wittgenstein was very concerned with language and how it's used and appropriated. And, and so the idea is that if you want to know what something means, if you want to know what a word means, you don't look to you know, Webster's definition of it. You look to how does it function within a community. Yeah. So when we talk about the Bible... Uh, can, does the way Christians read the Bible, does it differ from the way that non-believers read the Bible? Well, I would certainly. say it does, yeah, absolutely. right? Um, all of this can apply then to this situation I think we're talking about where you go, okay, well, you can reject Paul if you don't like him. And the That's question right. is, can you? Are you, are you really, you you know, are you, first of all, more authoritative than Paul is in, in right. relation to it? And then what litmus test, like what are you defining Paul against? And is that not something you've created in your own sense of moral, yeah. you know? And I think what Wittgenstein, what you're saying Wittgenstein did, if I'm saying that right, I can't say the words as eloquently Witt as Wittgenstein. you. Wittgenstein. All I'm I know is you make the German. W's and the V's. Um, <laughs> so uh, 
because I think something that's really important, and this is this is my Catholic side coming out. I have a number of friends who are Catholics and have learned a lot of good things from them. Uh, they would often remind me that where did the Bible come from? Yeah, right. right. That uh, uh, the Bible is part of the tradition of the church. Mm-hmm. You don't get the Bible without the church, uh, without the movement you're a part of. So to say that you can throw out Paul is being um, contrary to the, not just the book. I mean, the, if the Bible is just a book, perhaps the yeah. people on the one side of that spectrum you were talking about are right, if it's just a book. But we don't think of it as just a book. We think of it as something that, that there's certainly a spiritual dynamic to it, but there's also a part of it being that this is the heart of the church right. um, in, in, a, in a certain way, that... The, the Bible makes us as the church and the, we make the Bible, you know, or right. we have been the caretakers of, of the Bible. And so, so I can't, so I can't say I'm a Christian throughout Paul because I am being contrary to the movement of 2000 years plus that I am a part of. hundred percent. Um, I would agree totally with that yeah. statement. I think this is where the idea of a tradition, you know, reading the Bible within a community is actually uh, it, it's it's necessary to actually reading the Bible. You Absolutely. can't do it without, because how does the language function for us within that community? That determines a lot of what's, what we're saying about it. What does it mean? Um, there's another writer who talks about the idea of, you know, we're always trying to search for the context in which the Bible is set. But he reminds us, this guy, I think his name was David Iago. That's, that's the writer, I think, who it was. But he talks about the idea that conceptually, when you're looking at Scripture, you are within a different mental context if you accept that Christ is Lord and if you don't. So That's if you're right. approaching the text and going, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, yes. <laughs> then suddenly you're now in a new context in which that language means something completely different to me. Yeah. Because I have to take it in a different way. I have to, it has to be shaped a different way. If I'm a non-believer and I'm reading the Bible, can I truly understand what the Bible is saying? And I think this is where... You know, Karl Barth, I keep throwing out all these names, but they're important to kind of the formation of these. Karl Barth, who's considered the greatest theologian of the 20th century, if not the last couple hundred years, I mean, he would be on that spectrum. He's very close to the far end. He'd probably be type four out of five, where his belief and what he was trying to say was to do theology, theo, you know, God, science, you have to begin with the word of God. You can't begin with... Uh, structures of reason, you know, Aristotelian metaphysics or something like that, and then see if God fits into that. God has to define himself by the word, and that's what we have to go by. And that means that we are entering into a sort of narrative, okay? And that's where one of the things about post-liberal theology is often called narrative theology as well, or or that's kind of an outgrowth of it, that uh, the Bible is a story, Yes. And it's a continuing story, right? It's not a book, it's 66 books. And it's they're all brought together, and, it's, and they have different genres, but they all yeah. kind of overarch. And, and tell brought the together in a very specific way by Christian right. tradition, right? So sometimes people will talk about the Hebrew Scriptures, which is what we call the Old Testament. But there's a difference. It's not a synonym. The Old Testament is arranged differently mm-hmm. within the context of the New Testament as well. Yeah. Um, so if you pick up an Old Testament and you pick up a New Testament, uh, like a... A book of the Hebrew Scriptures, the books are in a different order, and that's right. and there's there's meaning to that. You know, Malachi ends 
in a certain way with expectation. What's going to happen next? Yes. When is when is God going to move things uh, to to the right? And then it begins with Matthew, and that big and mm-hmm. and I remember the first time I read Matthew, I was like, you know, the first time I'd ever really tried to read the Bible, I was like reading Matthew, and I'm like. Uh, holy, it starts with all these lists of names and stuff like that, and it means nothing to me. <laughs> but totally. it would mean something in the context of the larger story. It, it means so much, right? Absolutely. In the and it's the... bringing the story of the Old Testament into what's the context of Jesus right. and what, what the New Testament is going to be about. That is a, that's a so, big part of it, is the connecting of the Old Testament and the, you know, the, the fact that this is a continuation of that. Uh, you are, you know, according to some post-liberal scholars, they would even go as far as to say, like, we have to reimagine ourselves as honorary Jews. Yes. Right. Like as a Christian, you are, in, you are taking on this whole tradition and carrying on with it in a way that so it all matters in terms of you know even when paul is saying things he's saying i've given this in accordance with the scripture you can't you can't understand jesus without first knowing the prophets and the law that's right uh that's really interesting that's how the book of acts ends is him arguing from the law of moses and the prophets right so it puts a spin i think too on contemporary even apologetics and people who are apologetics to being defense for the faith when you see that often now they're typically arguing from public reason, uh, yes. right? From, you know, well, primary mover arguments, or here's where God is. Paul, I think I think it's more the other way. I think Paul is arguing from Scripture itself. Everything yes. derives from Scripture. Everything is, this is what that tradition said. This is how it poses itself. This is the narrative you have to either accept or reject. But you can't, you can't take that narrative. You can't take the gospel. You can't take the Bible as a whole and try and shoehorn it into some pre-molded, cosmology, you know, into some kind of fixed idea of the world you have. This is where that the Chicago school at the, you know, would have moved more in the sense of the Bible has to keep up with modern trends and language and for it to be relevant still. Seems to me post-liberal theology is less concerned with being relevant and just more concerned with, are we treating it appropriately and accurately? Yes. Because liberal theology doesn't necessarily do that. The liberal no, it doesn't. It, it doesn't. Much I, different you can view. Paint it with a, um, a wide brush. There. I, I read one uh, Jewish scholar in a commentary, uh, in his forward to a commentary. I'm trying to. Rem- I'll try to remember. I'm not as good with names as you, uh, but he, he's a fantastic uh, um, writer. And the beginning of his commentary on uh, Exodus, I believe it was, he um, was talking about how uh, liberal. Uh, Protestant liberal uh, theologians have often treated the Bible like it was a carcass to, you know, like we're trying to figure out how did it die, you know, and that is a completely different way of looking at the Bible as opposed to to it being something alive. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, And and again, I think that speaks to the whole thing of, of these Twitter people saying you can throw out Paul. Well, not if if you're looking at the Bible as if it's just some dead thing. Right. That you can do what you want with it, yes. But if you think that you are a Christian who's part of a movement, then you can't do that. You, ha- you, and 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 I think this has to do with this. I, I I get ticked off sometimes with our modern age. I think we're so privileged, we're so pampered, and we just think if something we don't like something, you know, I mean, we get a headache, we take a pill, you know, we. <laughs> Uh, we don't want to travel. We'll just video call someone. I mean, we are so pampered and privileged with our, with our modern science and technology 
yeah. that any kind of pain, inconvenience, suffering is anathema to us. So if Paul says something that offends me, I'm just going to throw him out. Right. And it's like, no, that's not how it goes. Can we not... I think that's exactly yeah. correct in the way that I, the Bible has in, in the way that the Bible presents itself to play by its rules. That's kind of lingo I'm going to use. Uh, you have to accept Paul. Now, going back to Wittgenstein and what post-liberal theology is trying to do, because people in, people were wary that post-liberal theology was going to revert back into some sort of fundamentalism. Mm. Okay, which is also bad. Which is taking the Bible purely literally or something and then just, and like it's authoritative on surface value and here you You go. You just stepped in it. We just lost a third of our listeners. Well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, but this is the complexity of it is that if you kind of pay attention to that Wittgensteinian turn, um, it means that you have to take Paul seriously. You have to listen to Paul, but how you listen, how we absorb Paul and what we do with him as, as an authoritative voice it doesn't result, it's not supposed to result in some static, this is just what he meant, and end of, you know, end of story. That's, we're done with it. If it's the living and active word, there's a way in which Paul needs to be brought into the whole of Scripture and discussed as, as being the word of God as part of the complexity of this whole narrative. Um, that's difficult, that's yes. a difficult theological project to speak theologically of Scripture, to have a theological interpretation of Scripture, because God doesn't conform to our ways of knowing. And so there is this sense in which, you know, one of the things that I think I take most from uh, a, a theologian like Karl Barth, who has, can at least be said to fit somewhere in that post-liberal, or he's influenced a lot of them, uh, that post-liberal stream, is the the word of God comes to us in that it contradicts us. Mm. There's a sense in which um, because the truth of Jesus is a person and not a principle, That's I don't right. have ownership over the truth of the gospel. Therefore, living the gospel becomes, theology becomes a way of life, right? That's and right. you've said this before. Uh, theology is now, I have to attempt to kind of live by it, live by its wisdom, constantly refine what I'm thinking, but yes. also be enveloped by the word. I'm under it. You know, yes. I'm not the coroner over top of this dead body. Right. Cutting and choosing and all that kind of stuff. I'm under a living person, you know. Exactly. I, and in like doing so... The disciples at Jesus' feet, right? And in doing yeah. so, it must add, it doesn't dispose of things like the historical critical method. Absolutely it, It's not. supposed to elevate them. It brings them back so that studying the history and the context of Scripture is all important, but it's not what the meaning is per se. Correct. Um, it is... It helps facilitate the meaning and it actually has practical application and there's, you know, things you can do with it. But that is a difficult project. I just, you know, uh, one of my favorite things about it though, and this is where this has been something that I think Bart helps with, but there's a, there's another guy who was deeply influenced by Bart who I've been reading lately named Donald McKinnon. He was a a Scottish philosopher uh, at Oxford and then Cambridge, and I think he ended in Aberdeen. I always like to just give a little context so people know sure. what I'm talking about. He was this incredibly eccentric figure. Uh, he he would shout at the ivy on the school walls. Okay, he was a bit nuts. <laughs> he was a brilliant <laughs> philosopher and and did some theology as well. And one of the things that he points out about Scripture that I think would strike a lot of Christians as we want we want the Bible to kind of fit into a reasonable box of our understanding, right? We're looking for answers all the time. And McKinnon was one of those people who the Bible 
The Bible wasn't there to give you answers. It was there to push you deeper into a mystery. Mm. And when you look at the narrative of Scripture, he walks away with this understanding, which he actually he pulls this also from Kierkegaard, that Christianity should, in a sense, terrify us. Yes. And the reason is, and this goes to what I think we're talking about in terms of how we approach Scripture and what it is, what is the overall narrative of Scripture really saying? And one of the things McKinnon brings out of it is he says, it's saying that when we trusted our own understanding of things and didn't live by the living word, we crucified God himself. Mm. That, that somehow God reveals himself in Scripture through our apostasy. Yes. That is a deeply troubling and disturbing realization, but it shapes completely how I think we should approach Scripture, is that we have to constantly approach the text with this revered humility Yes, that if I try and own this myself and say, I know exactly what it means, and it means all of this, I actually can run into the very danger the Pharisees ran into. That's right. That I could, I could miss Jesus. I could actually be adopting an idol. Yes. And I could crucify God in that process. That's right. It should be challenging us. It Otherwise, sh- yes. what is the point of us going to Scripture if it's not for... If we don't come to, to Scripture uh, with that humility you were talking about, then what am I coming to Scripture for? To justify myself? To to have my biases confirmed? Or am I doing it because I'm a disciple, a follower, a student of Jesus, and I'm doing my best to, to learn what is the right way? What, what, how, how should it go? Oh, and by the way, I remembered it was Nahum Sarna, the <laughs> Jewish name. scholar great name. that uh, I thought of. It, it, that is another good, good name. What was that, uh, that gentleman with the great name I was telling you were telling me about before we started? Oh, there was a, there's another guy from the Yale School as well named uh, Laman Sana. And he talks Sana. about, he wrote a book a called Translating name. the Message, which is about missionary work and, uh, and sort of the history of, of missiology and how. The Bible, the Bible, you know, again, this is about how you read the Bible and what we're saying about Scripture. Uh, the fact that it's translatable, the fact that it could be brought into other languages and, and sort of adopt them. I mean, again, says something about the approach to Scripture that we should have and its, its way of working in the world. Um, and his th- name is cool. I think, and his name is great. Yeah. He's certainly worth listening to some YouTube uh, things on him. But one of the things that you had just said that I wanted to kind of reference back to, because I think it's, I think it's another thing that the, the post-liberal theologians, again, have sort of tried to highlight, is that reading Scripture is more about having Scripture read us. Mm. It is more about you being interrogated by the Word rather than me interrogating it. I yes. have to kind of come under the... Now, like I said, th- there's a few things here that it doesn't... It's supposed to do that without blending back into some fundamentalism that Scripture in its authority and its being foundational doesn't just become this, this uh, you know, way of... of beating other people over the head and Bible bashing yeah. them. And we, saying, we started well, talking about, fu- we started, you know, to send the fundamentalists. So let's yeah. just go right into it. But on the, but on the other side, it also, and this is where I, sometimes I hear this in the language where it also doesn't mean that we don't have anything to confess. It doesn't mean that we're now just, everything's up in the air and I can't really know. It doesn't leave us without ground. Um, it should actually strengthen certain grounds, but it's more about how is the word still speaking today? 
Um, so you can still recite the creed, right? Like, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That's not now somehow relativized by post-liberal reading, theological reading that goes, you know, you don't get to own the principles of the text. Um, it, still, it still has certainly confessional standards. It doesn't mean that you can read the Bible any way you want to, but it also tries to free it from this sort of static it only means this one thing, and once we get the historical data, then we'll have it figured out, right? Yes, So that's right. So that's the difficult work of it. But I always go back to that. It's treating it as a holy scripture. It's treating it as a living word, okay? Something that, you know, you hear in Hebrews today, if you hear his voice quoting the Psalms. So there's this way of, of, of reading scripture such that it is what God is speaking to us now. And when you look at somebody like the Apostle Paul, and even though you go, some of this stuff doesn't sit right, it's authoritative. It is the authoritative word of God. This is the word of God speaking. And yeah. it's really more a matter then of how we absorb what Paul yeah. is saying. How are we approaching that text? What are we, you know, yes, the historical context matters. There's also the illusions and the, and the ways in which the Old Testament is brought into this and how Christ is at yes. the center of all of it. All of these things are really important, and, that, and that's difficult. But... I, I, to me, I think in terms of a practical step for people and in, in ways of thinking about this, it means being immersed in the text in yeah. a way that it becomes the language of the community you're in. Yeah. It has to function within the community you're in. It's not really, and it's why I don't really get bent out of shape now arguing with non-believers about, you know, because I go, you're not really supposed to understand what it means until you've attempted to live it. Yes. That's a very, that's an existentialist sort of Kierkegaardian philosophical principle there. That I think it's a, it's Christianity a, only makes sense when you try and live it. A good biblical defense though, because... yeah. Um, I, I think there is a, a sense in which um, when you're on the outside of something looking in, exactly. it has a completely That's a different, different perspective than when, yeah. you're in, than when you're actually inside. Um, and, and I want to say as well, like we're, we're riffing on these um, um, folks who are deconstructing Paul and stuff like that. I want to say, you know, on one side that I do have a lot of sympathy with that. I Certainly. myself have had times where I've read Paul and other parts of the Bible and kind of just been like, oh, I just don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that it's about trust, right? If I really trust not just the Bible, but this tradition I'm in, if I trust that, that there's a God, that he, that he came as Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is here with us in and through the church, in and through my, even myself, then I need to have some degree of trust that, okay, there's stuff in the Bible that confuses me, offends me, makes me scratch my head. Mm. That's okay. Maybe I don't get it now, but maybe I can find a way forward. Right. You know, I think what a lot of what offends people from Paul is some of what he says about women. Yeah, certainly. Um, and it's, it's I, I find it ironic that we're talking about liberal and post-liberal folks. I think one thing that liberal, a lot of liberal um, folks will say that there are certain books of the Bible that they don't think Paul wrote. I, I find it ironic <laughs> that a lot of those books that they don't think that Paul wrote are the ones where he would say offensive things about women. The funny thing I, I find about reading all that literature on, you know, the skepticism of did Paul really write uh, these letters or whatever? Did he write Second Corinthians? Did he not write this? It, it, a lot of the arguments, they seem to boil down to this just doesn't sound like this doesn't have Paul vibes to it. Yes. You know what I mean? And it, ultimately, that can be maybe there's some merit to that. But 
But I think this is sort of missing the, the way in which how, again, scripture is read and what we mean by authority. We haven't talked yet about inerrancy or anything like that, but these are not terms that I, I tend to care to use um, because I think they're used in these hyper-literal kinds of ways. I don't know if they really help all the time. Yeah, To say the Bible is inerrant. I yeah. mean, like, first of all, to say the Bible is the inerrant word of God is what's called a tautology. If it's the word of God, it's inerrant. <laughs> you don't have to say it's inerrant. It's the word of God. But the question is, you know, what does that mean? And does God communicate to us in ways in which everything fits neatly into a package? No, the Bible reflects no. completely the opposite. Yes. And the Bible requires wisdom and constant reflection. And con- You know, if it were just data to be mined, we could just read it once and be done. That's right. And go, and the, I got it. And the you challenge know? with inerrancy as well is that people don't use it as a doctrine to help us understand anything better. We use it as a way of of sort of voiding and and ignoring certain arguments that we just don't want to face. I think that's true. And yeah. um, and again, it might be. I, I I would actually say to some degree it is truth that I, I believe that the Bible is without error. I believe the Bible is completely trustworthy. But that doesn't mean every interpretation of yes. the Bible is yeah. trustworthy. I'd and agree that's totally. the issue. Yeah, people I, want to say, you know, my belief in the literal six day creation. Is because mm. the Bible is inerrant. Well, the Bible may be inerrant, but that doesn't mean your understanding of Genesis 1 is. Totally. And I think that's exactly where what we're talking about becomes, it's more, it's, it's a difficult thing, but it's about how we approach Scripture uh, rather than just putting a label on it and saying, it's authoritative, it, it must mean this. It's certain. Now, Absolutely. And again, Amen. you can get also into the idea that some people overcomplicate things that are very simply put. Yep. Um, one of the difficulties with a lot of these readings that kind of open up questions is that then people aren't judicious enough moving forward. They can't, they, they become almost paralyzed in a sea of like, I don't really know what's being said. It's not meant to do that either. But we need to absorb the narrative of scripture and the story that's unfolding there. And, and, and this again, where I bring somebody like Donald McKinnon, who's been very uh, he helped me a lot, I think, in, in terms of reading the Bible as something that that it has has these wonderful little mysteries in it that we just shouldn't be so quick to assume we know what the you know he talks a lot about the parables like parables are confusing strange things and it's not just so easy to go like well in the parable of the prodigal son the father represents guys like the, the father's kind of a crazy old fool also i mean what about that reading of it you know what about you know, what about you know all these ones where where God is is really like a a, a bad landlord or something, right? Like they're meant to uh, to jostle us out of a certain way of thinking that's just uniform and precise and these things. Yeah, God has yeah. got to be God. We sometimes and tend to want to domesticate the Bible. I think smooth that's smooth off those edges. And I'm that not are about that. Yeah. Maybe the thing I'll just end on here, because I think it was it was very helpful, and it goes back to um, Augustine's reading of Scripture. When you go back and you read something like the Confessions, I think you see a great example of what I would want to bring back, which is he writes as though the Bible's language is his own, especially the Psalms, particularly the Psalms. He is quoting the Psalms in almost everything he says. His theology is sort of prayer through through reading Scripture. And one of the reasons why he's doing that is because that is precisely what Jesus does. Jesus speaks through the Psalms. And so for us to memorize and to recite the Psalms, to read scripture in that way, so that it becomes a part of our own language and vocabulary, 
is actually one of the first steps in imitating Christ himself, that you participate in God's life. You participate in, in the uh, unification with the Son as you have the words of Scripture on your lips. Um, this, uh, to me, this is something that, again, it, it's not emphasized in our churches in a way that it once was, where actually memorizing actually having the words of Scripture in your brain. Uh, I'm sorry about the name drops, but Dallas Willard, another theologian who pushes this, he emphasizes this so strongly in a lot of his works. What's the first thing Christian disciples should do? Memorize Scripture. Mm. Not, And it doesn't mean you have to go like, I believe that's Colossians 1, 3, you know, whatever. Yeah, I'm terrible at that. Okay, at but, the just, but having but. <laughs> the words of Scripture in your mind and on your lips, used in your vocabulary... Is, is the way the language begins to function and scripture becomes a sort of, the, it becomes holy scripture. It yes. becomes the foundation for all of the theology that we do. And it's freeing. It's not static. It doesn't yes. become, it doesn't chain you into something. It becomes living and active. Yeah. And it can say so much. You know what I like about our discussion today is I feel like we're, we're absolutely talking about theology, but we're also talking about spirituality and how how does this play out in our life. And so I'm, I'm really happy that's where where we're we're landing with this. Absolutely, um, I'm sure that's you know where the rubber hits the road, not mm-hmm. just up here academics and and well, not just that, down here practical application. I think that's also the what whole I would deal. Be aimed at. I, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think what I what I tend to what I want to aim at in my own theology is it's not to uh, poo-poo academia, and it's not to say that that highbrow theology, you know, like you know, book learning and knowing all these quotes is is necessarily bad, but it's to move us more into contemplative worship, mm. um, meditative, meditating on the Word of God, recognizing that it, to let it wash over us in a way to say, yeah, sometimes that's really confusing. Um, sometimes it, it seems backwards, but always always diving in, always kind of swimming in Scripture, talking about it in your community and in your Christian community and in your Bible study groups and those sorts of things, and, and wrestling with it. And, you know, that's one of the amazing things about Jesus having the words of the Psalms on his lips is that they are words constantly of lament and abandonment. And, you know, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, th- that is that is crucial to the way in which Jesus identifies with us, and then the way we identify with Him. Absolutely, having that Scripture um, uh, transform us and and be you know pushing us to a meditative and spiritual place, rather than to it's about academic study, yeah, and or or it's not about that at all, and it's just about a very simple plain reading, right? It's yeah. recognizing the complexity of it and recognizing deeply the simplicity on the other end of just kind of going, it's as simple as having a childlike faith, but it's as deep and as wide as it's never something you can grasp totally. It requires a constant refinement and reflection and always, always moving forward with that as a community. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of The Deep Dive. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to stay engaged with what we're doing, you can hit the like and subscribe button on YouTube, or you can subscribe or follow wherever you download your podcasts. When you like and subscribe, you support the ministry here at Deepwater Church, and we are truly thankful for that. Now, hitting the subscribe button will not earn you your salvation, but it will keep Colin from crying. We'll see you next week on The Deep Dive.